Welcome to the Science of Performance. This is a new podcast in the Free Trail Network sponsored by Bow Technology. My name is Dan Feeney and I'm going to be your host. Just a little background on me before I can talk about all the interesting guests that we are going to have on this season. I did a PhD in neuromechanics from the University of Colorado Boulder and I spent the last five years building a biomechanics laboratory at Bow Technology. We work with most of the leading brands across the world, and we've tested a number of different pieces of footwear, everything from snowboarding boots, alpine ski boots, to trail running shoes. I want to take you into a lot of the learnings that I've learned over these last five years, exposing some of the nuances, some of the areas where the science is gray, and really challenging some of the assumptions that I think are out there. I'm really excited to have you on this journey, and please leave comments and thoughts as to what you liked and what you don't like. Hello, hello, everyone. Uh, you're listening to The Science of Performance, a podcast of the Free Trail Network, sponsored by Boa Technology. As always, I'm your host, Dan Feeney. And we're always going to be dissecting the fundamentals of peak performance, whether that be the biomechanics of footwear to the physiology of training. Our focus here is understanding what are some long-held assumptions that maybe aren't exactly true and, and maybe there are some differences. I'm super excited to have James Sprague here today. James is a coach at the world-class Intercept Performance Consultancy. He's also finishing up his PhD at the University of Cape Town in exercise physiology where he studied a variety of mechanisms responsible for deterioration in performance, focusing on Grand Tour cycling stage races. James also coaches a number of skyrunners and ski mountaineers, so the topics should be near and dear to the audience's heart. And our conversation is going to cover a variety of topics surrounding coaching and physiology. You know, James, I think as, of myself really as a biomechanist, and I, I think the sad thing is a lot of biomechanists really sort of bastardize or butcher some of the physiology terms that go on here. We oftentimes look at these measurements as, hey, I can see if somebody used more or less energy to run in a shoe. But you've really studied this stuff down and you really, truly understand things. And so, James, really excited to have you on. Thanks. No, it's great to be here. And I, I think, you know, we as physiologists also butcher biomechanics. So I think that goes, that certainly goes both ways. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, so that's what, you know, most of my research, most of my work is doing from a kind of coaching from a, from a physiological perspective, I guess. Um, and can trying to use my more academic research side to, to inform kind of applied practice. Awesome. Yeah. So, James, let's get started. You know, the way that I oftentimes think of the importance of physiology as well as coaching is we want to be able to parameterize or understand performance. And then you assign training to the athletes to try to improve certain attributes of performance. And I know you do a lot of cycling coaching as well as some running and other coaching. Could you start about if you have a new athlete, what are some of the ways that you start working and testing with that athlete and then in an idealized case, if you could bring them into the lab, what do you measure? And maybe we'll talk about what each of those measurements really means. Okay, yeah, sure. So um, let, let's talk from a cycling perspective because that's what I'm doing most of my work at the moment. So a lot of the work we do with athletes is actually field-based testing. So power, what we call power profiling, essentially. So you, you've got the, the power duration relationship, the power that people can produce for various periods of time. Um, and we start to try and understand that relationship. And there's a few key components that determine that relationship. So you have your peak power, so that's the maximum power that you can produce. You have what you can sustain for, let's say, a, a relatively long period of time, somewhere around the 40 minutes for, for elite athletes, and that's what we call the critical power. And then you have essentially what dictates the curvature of the power-up duration relationship between those two points, and that's what we call W prime. 
once we have those three things and we can test them both in the field and, and in the lab, but we typically tend to go into the field, then we can start to make predictions about performance. We can model performance against known quantities. So if we know, you know, you need, I don't know, let's say 6.5 watts per kilo for 20 minutes to be competitive at a Tour de France level, we can model what our athletes can do and then we can see, okay, do they hit these benchmarks or not? And we can start then identifying both strengths and areas that we need to kind of improve in order to, to allow those strengths to come through in, in race uh, circumstances. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I think from my viewpoint, as I've understood this W prime testing, you're having people do a variety of tests. So maybe it's five seconds, you measure their power output. And maybe it's 20 or 40 minutes, you measure the power output and a few points in between. And like you said, you sort of fit this curve that goes down and to the right over time. Is that right? Yeah, sort of. So the critical power model itself only covers what we call severe exercise intensity domain. So okay. that's essentially intensities at which you will hit VO2 max. So obviously, if you do a very short sprint, you won't hit VO2 max before you have to stop. And if you do a very, very long effort, you know, you'll, you won't be able to hit VO2 max at the end of that effort because you'll be glycogen depleted and you'll maybe core temperature or whatever else is stopping your performance. So in that middle range, which is roughly from about two minutes down to, let's say, 40 minutes in elite athletes, that is what we call the severe exercise intensity domain. And that's essentially the range of intensities at which if you've got an athlete to ride at those intensities until they you know, were no longer able to continue, they would hit VO2 max at the end of that test. Okay. Now for cycling, that's where a lot of the key kind of um, race winning efforts take place in that range. So those kind of maximal but relatively sustainable efforts, especially for the climbers, most of their efforts take place within this, you know, this severe exercise intensity domain, as we call it. Um, so that's a big part of our modeling. Okay. Above that, so for those exercise intensities where you, you know, sprint intensities, essentially, there's other ways to model them. Um, but they are not predicted by some of your tests. So you have to test essentially like maximal sprint tests. We do. Uh, we do a one minute test with athletes. We do. They're both to kind of the model the sprint end. Then we do a three, a five, and a 20 to model that severe exercise intensity domain. And then actually we do some submaximal testing for some, some other stuff, uh, so like lactate threshold. And then from that, we have a whole picture of, you know, what an athlete can do from one second all the way out to, you know, sort of three hours. And from there, we can start to pick that apart and see where the gaps are in performance. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things is cycling is very robust about testing the individual athlete and finding these profiles for each of them. You know, for me, uh, when I did ride a bike, I can't sprint worth a damn, um, but I could ride a, a steady bit for a long time. I see so many potential parallels with trail running. And so I'm curious if you could talk about one, maybe why you don't think exactly this type of testing is done as frequently in trail running, some of the differences, and then if you are working with a trail athlete, what are some of the infield kind of tests that you would like to do? Yeah, I think I think there's, there's some sort of historical context around that and so like traditions around testing and, and things like that. And I think that does play a big role. And, you know, obviously getting buy-in for the, from the athletes in terms of what testing they're doing and the numbers that are coming back is also a really important part of the coaching process, right? So I think it's really tricky to just come in and say, okay, we're going to do something completely new that you've never done before that that's probably not going to go too down too well with your athletes and, and that makes things tricky from a coaching perspective. So I think there's an element of that. I think in cycling, um, obviously we're able to, we're able to take power measurements very easily. And I know that's coming on board now in running with, with things like stride, but it's a little bit different. So uh, like 
let's take uphill cycling for example, we can measure mechanical power output on bikes. We have power meters on them that do that. Stride has to calculate that based on an algorithm inside it to predict what your power output would be. And then actually it fudges it so that the numbers look a little bit like cycling. So it's not quite as, you're not measuring mechanical power output in the same way that you are with cycling, okay? And also we have, you know, we've been doing this for 20, 30 years in cycling. So it's just developed in that direction, I guess, from, from a testing perspective. Um, so I think that's some of the differences. I think with actually with the, um, with the trail runners I work with, we do do critical, we do critical pace, which is obviously the, the, the running version of critical power. I do do critical pace and, and D prime, which is the W prime uh, version and running testing with my athletes. Um, and then we do correlate that to performance. Um, it's not as easily to correlate. It's not as easy to correlate with performance as in cycling, but it still gives us a good direction of like when we give them a training intervention, where are we moving the needle? Do you know what I mean? Like we might see an improvement in like, like a, a standardized test, like a I say a ten minute uphill test, for example. But it has that come from anaerobic sources and in inverted commas, or has that come from more aerobic sources and in inverted commas? And by doing a, a critical pace test as well as that field test you can actually start to pick that apart and see how the athlete responds so i, I do think it has a place in trail running and i use it both in schema and, and trail running with with athletes um but i think that's probably because i come from a, a cycling background so i'm kind of comfortable with those tests as a coach and comfortable with the metrics that i get out from it and and therefore you know i have a preference for those in my coaching yeah that's awesome you know again as a biomechanist i've always struggled with on one sense, you know, running power meter, if you're running on level ground, you do no network, which is something that I think a lot of runners maybe struggle to understand. Of course, it's hard, but you actually haven't changed the potential energy of your center of mass. And so because of that, you know, exactly to your point, running power is a little bit more convoluted. We could just look at how much propulsive work did you do? Um, and then uphill, it is a little bit more straightforward. As I understand stride and some of the other measurements, I think they're trying to correlate a little bit to like what your metabolic cost might be. But then again, you know, to your point, make it yeah. make the numbers look like cycling. In all of these cases, you know, to your point, though, you're trying to understand, like, as an athlete, maybe they're looking at a three hour race or an ultra marathon. You're trying to figure out what are the training distributions they need to hit in order to be successful there. And maybe they're deficient in that long term. And so you can target training that way. Could you talk a little bit about the D prime or W prime and just philosophically, what does it mean and why is it important to athletes? Because I bet a lot of athletes have never heard of it. Yeah, so the way you can think of the D prime or the W prime, the easiest way to think of it is as a battery that you can use above your critical pace or your critical power. Okay, so in your critical pace or your critical power, you can sustain for, let's say, 40 minutes for an elite athlete. Okay. So if you want to go faster than 40 minute pace or 40 minute power, you need to use some D prime on top of that. Now the D prime or the W prime is a fixed capacity. So you can use it up over a very short period of time and it adds a lot of uh, pace or a lot of watts, or you can use it a little bit of it and eke it out over a long period of time and it only adds a little bit. So it's essentially a fixed capacity that you have above your critical pace or your critical power. Physiologically speaking, we don't understand it that well. We don't really understand the, the, the determinants of it. But what we do know is when you empty your W prime and you hit exhaustion, so when you can't go or sustain a certain power or pace anymore, we see a consistent physiological response. So you hit VO2 max, inorganic phosphate levels within the muscle hit 
certain concentrations, pH reaches the same concentration each time, hydrogen ion production reaches the same concentration each time. So we know that it's almost like a, a physiological capacity that you have that you can use over different periods of time. The caveat to it, and why it's a little bit more complicated, is that it's tempting to think of it as a purely physiological component of performance. However, it's not. So if you're mentally fatigued, for example, we know that your critical pace or your critical power actually stays the same, but your W prime or your D prime actually decreases. So it has this com mental component to it in terms of probably motivation, central drive, all those, all those kind of things that also influence it. And that's why it's very tricky to pick out from a, um, an experimental perspective, what exactly are the determinants of it? We can see what influences it, but we can't, you know, get to an equation where, you know, X amount of this and Y amount of this plus whatever else equals your W prime. So that's, yeah. that's what the W prime is and how we use it in, in kind of exercise physiology. That's, yeah, that's super helpful. And, and I really like the battery analogy. And I think for trail racers, especially thinking about whether it be an ultra or even a, a medium distance race, say you have a really sharp, steep climb, you need to make the decision. Are you going to power hike? Are you going to run? And probably if you're going to run, it's probably going to deplete some of that D prime. Um, could you talk a little bit, you know, you talked about critical power and as I've always understood it again, as a biomechanist, so this is probably wrong, but, um, you know, it's a theoretical thing where you could maintain a certain power output in cycling or pace in running basically indefinitely in an ideal state. So if you always had food coming in and, and things like that, is that more or less it? Uh, I, I think there's some confusion about exactly what critical, uh, critical power is the, the way we calculate it is from the asymptote to which that power duration relationship that I talked about earlier, the asymptote to which that trends, okay? Mm -hmm. And we use the asymptote to, as the critical power. However, obviously, your power duration relationship never hits an asymptote because that would mean you could sustain a certain power forever, right? And physiologically right. speaking, obviously, that's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. So what we... Uh, and that was, you know... That problem with the critical power model was dealt with back in the 50s and 60s. I think mm -hmm. as it's got more attention, these questions have come up and people have you know, gone back to the original research or, or ideas and not kind of kept up. Mm -hmm. The way we think about it now is it's the, it's the maximal power or pace at which you can maintain a metabolic steady state. So all of those uh, kind of substrates or meta metabolites in the muscle that slow you down so inorganic phosphate, changes in pH, um, hydrogen ions, uh, maybe some potassium production, all those things that slow you down, slow you, the function of your muscle cells down, they are at their maximum steady state within the muscle. Once those levels start increasing, so you go a little bit harder, you go above that critical power, critical pace, you get a progressive increase in those metabolites, even if you don't increase the pace or the power. You drop below your critical power, critical pace, those levels will again stabilize. So it's, it's, it's a metabolic uh, power output or pace, if you like, that's metabolically stable or unstable. Um, so that's how we now think of the critical power. Yeah, thank you. That, that's a really helpful um, way to clarify that. And, you know, I think for most runners or cyclists or, or ski mountaineers, to some extent, they're going to be thinking, OK, well, it's sort of like a relatively intense, but not too intense thing that I can maintain for a long time. 
And then to your point, when you need to burn matches or you need to sprint to catch a group um, or go up a really steep hill, you're going to be going above that. And so you're going to accumulate more of those metabolites that you talked about and ultimately slow down. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I think what you said about this critical power asymptote is something that I've always found incredibly interesting. And, and I just want to highlight for a second, you know, so James talked about this, this sort of downward sloping curve from one second sprinting all the way out to 40 minutes. And, you know, as that curve gets down along the x-axis and it sort of levels out, that's that asymptote he's talking about. So these are, again, just ways that we can model performance. And within the biomechanics sphere, we oftentimes will just take one one sort of intensity and, and we'll look at the VO2 at that point and we'll use that as a measure of running economy. So I'm using that to segue into um, VO2 and VO2 max. And James had a... Um, position paper about using a viewpoint paper called using VO2 max as a marker of training status um, that's peer reviewed and published. And I'd love for you to just talk about maybe first define literally what is VO2 max? How do we measure it? And why it may or may not be one of the best indicators of training status? Okay, so the, the, a little bit of background to the paper first. This is um, a me and a couple of colleagues kicking the kicking the hornet's nest a little bit in terms of um, the way things have, have traditionally been done in, in exercise physiology. So VO2 max is essentially the maximum amount of oxygen that you can take up and use. Typically, it's measured in milliliters per kilogram per minute or just milliliters per minute. So we either normalize it to body mass or we don't, and we use a minute as a, as a, as a time frame for it. Okay, so essentially, the higher your VO2 max, the more oxygen you can take up, the more work you can do with that oxygen, the more power you can produce. Okay, quite, so quite simple. Mm -hmm. um, at a population level, really nice measure like tells you you know how well how healthy people are going to be tell, predicts life expectancy predicts quality of life loads of really nice things it's a really nice predictor for however when you get to um groups of elite athletes stops working as a predictor of performance so for example andy jones did a really nice paper on the breaking two project if you look at the vo2 maxes of those guys they're all over the place. Like they're all in the elite category, if that makes sense, but like the best runners don't have the highest VO2 max. The reason for that is what actually predicts sustainable running pace or sustainable power is three things. So it's VO2 max, it's the percentage of VO2 max that you can sustain. So obviously if you've got two athletes, same VO2 max, let's say 80, and one can sit at 90% and one can only sit at 75%, obviously one can use a lot more oxygen over a given time. And it's also how effectively you turn that um, you turn that oxygen intake into propulsion, either at power output or, or, or pace. So those three things combined predict performance, not VO2 max on its own. And some of those are actually inversely related when we look at elite athletes. So it seems that economy, exercise economy, how well you take in that, how well you convert that oxygen or the potential energy in that oxygen into propulsion is actually inversely related to a VO2 max. And there's some physiological reason for that, which are a bit debated. But as the VO2 max goes up, economy goes down. And if you increase economy, it seems that VO2 max comes down. So it's a, it's a bit of a, an oddity, if that makes sense. Now, in exercise physiology, typically we've classified participants in all our studies using VO2 max because it's nice and easy to do, right? You stick them on a treadmill, you stick them on a bike, you do 12 minutes, you ramp it up over those 12 minutes, done, classified all my participants, that's me done in an afternoon. Our argument is that, especially as you go to the elite end of the spectrum, it's not useful anymore. So actually we need to be using critical power, critical pace 
these measures of sustainable performance, they're a much better measure of training status as they include, as the, the, essentially the output of those three things, VO2 max, percent sustainable VO2 max and exercise economy. So that's why we kicked the hornet's nest a little bit and tried to move the field in a, in a bit of a different direction. Yeah. And I love that, you know, to be perfectly honest, I've known James for a few years and followed his Twitter feed. And this has been something that I've kind of agreed with, which is why I brought that up. Um, I think the other reason is that, you know, I've been a runner my whole life and I've always had you know, mates. We go and they say, oh, I'm, I'm doing VO2 intervals today. And uh, needlessly to me, that that's always struggled. You're always breathing some amount of oxygen. So what do you mean by you're doing VO2 intervals? You know, is it an interval to try to increase your VO2 max? Because maybe that's hard, or is it to try to increase your critical power? Um, you know, again, switching to the product testing world, we will oftentimes be very cognizant of um, testing people's metabolics, meaning they breathe how much oxygen they breathe in and carbon dioxide they breathe out, but we can't have them go above a certain threshold. And the reason for that is because, and maybe James can correct me here, we start getting into the non steady state. And some of the calculations that we do with that data no longer sort of hold. And so, for example, in the, the famous Nike 4% study, as well as many subsequent studies, they measured the amount of oxygen they breathed in and CO2 they breathed out. But they also made sure the athletes were one below their lactate threshold by pricking their fingers and measuring blood lactate, as well as their ventilatory threshold. James, could you maybe talk a little bit about what those two thresholds mean and, and how they play into this whole role of critical power, critical pace, D prime, and VO2 max? Yeah, sure. So the way we think about uh, ranges of exercise intensity nowadays is what we call exercise intensity domains, which I, I kind of touched on earlier. So they represent ranges of intensities at which we see distinct but consistent physiological responses. Okay. And they're separated by the physiological thresholds, which I'll, I'll come back to in a minute. That's, that's sort of a, 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 a very simplistic way of, of putting it. But the thresholds, so up to the first threshold, and sometimes it's called lactate threshold, the first one, sometimes it's called LT1, sometimes it's called VT1. There's a few different ways depending on how you're measuring it. But essentially what you're looking for is the accumulation of lactate in the blood above baseline levels. So everyone has you know, a little bit of lactate floating around their blood anyway. But when we see that first rise, that's when we know, okay, that you know, there's, there's a quantity of blood, uh, of lactate coming out of the working muscles more than is being processed within the working muscle. Okay, so that's then coming into the blood to be processed elsewhere in, in the body. Again, we pick that up with the VT because we start to see some buffering, we start to see some changes in, in ventilation. So this first threshold is what I use as a coach to distinguish between endurance and tempo work, essentially. Like, so you've either got endurance work, you're below that threshold, you've got no acute, you know, no rise in blood lactate levels, it's very steady state, and you, you know, you can carry on that for a long time. If you go above that threshold, then you're starting to get into tempo work and we're starting to have a limit on duration. So that's known in the literature as the moderate exercise intensity domain for those that kind of do a bit of, of reading of the literature. After the, the lactate threshold, so you've got the heavy exercise intensity domain. So that's where you'll run a marathon, basically. So it's, it's anything at the short end, let's say 40 minutes, 45 minutes, at the long end, it's three hours. Okay, so within that exercise intensity domain, you've got uh, elevated blood lactate, but it's stable. So it's not rising 
as long as you keep the pace or the power the same, it's gonna stay, stay the same. Exactly the same with ventilation. So increase ventilation, increase CO2 production, but again, it's steady state as long as you don't change the power or the pace, okay? That takes us all the way up to that critical power or critical pace. And the critical power, the critical pace, denotes the border between the heavy exercise intensity domain and the severe exercise intensity domain, which I spoke about a minute ago, which is where we don't get a steady state any longer. And that's where you have to, you know, you're talking about the testing that you do, you have to do it below the critical power, the critical pace, because otherwise everything changes with time. Now, we used to think of these as pretty hard thresholds. So like, you know, I don't know, 400 watts is your, is your critical power and you know, 401 you're in the severe and 399 you're in the, you're in the heavy and that's not the case at all. So the, way, the best way to think about it is like a rainbow, okay? So when you look at a rainbow, you, you can see the clear colors, right? You can see orange, you can see red, you can see green, you can see blue. It's very difficult to pick the exact spot where one color becomes the next color, right? And it's exactly the same in exercise physiology. So when you're in the middle of a domain or you're exercising in a, you know, in a heavy exercise intensity domain, it's very easy to say, okay, I'm in the heavy exercise intensity domain. But in those transition points between moderate and heavy, heavy and severe, it's a little bit more, more difficult to pick out exactly, okay, which one am I in? And from a physiological perspective, you'll see a, a bit of a mix of results. Um, so that's kind of where those thresholds sit in. The, the critical power can also be measured estimated in, in a few different ways. So we can do it with blood lactate and use something called the MLSS, maximal lactate steady state. You can use critical power as a proxy. You can use um, what we call RCP. So that's where hyperventilation starts at a certain intensity in a, in a ramp test. They're all trying to do the same thing. And there's, there's arguments that go on for 50 years about which is better, which is um, the one to use, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think athletes need to get too, too buried into that. Like, but they're all trying to predict the same thing. Basically, where does steady state exercise finish and where does non-steady state exercise start? That's what they're all trying to predict and they all have the benefits and, and, and negatives. Um, but yeah, that's essentially what they're trying to do. Yeah, and you know, I love what you had to say about the, these hard cut points I think consumers, I think a lot of people always make a lot of do about these hard cut points, um, you know, whether it's a faster, slow twitch muscle fiber, whether it's this or that. In reality, everything's a continuum. And we do this kind of out of simplicity and, and finding patterns. But I think what you touched on that I really liked is so many runners are, you know, they're oftentimes haven't even done maybe a blood lactate test, but they know their quote unquote tempo pace is five minutes, 50 per mile or whatever. And they don't want to budge at all. But, you know, to your point, Maybe depending on your mental state, depending on how tired you are, your training load, that could actually be quite a big difference. Um, and that's something that I wish most runners really appreciated, that it's not a sta uh, static target. It's really moving over time. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think this gets into one of the articles I wanted to bring up, and it touches on something that James has been looking at, is there's an article out there in the literature called um, Predicting Trail Running Performance with Laboratory Exercise Tests and Field-Based Results. And um, Heitenkamp is the senior author, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And just briefly, um, one of the things that James touched on that's been really challenging to predict trail running performance is, like we said, we try to measure things in a steady state in the lab. That's what we're really comfortable with. We don't like uh, making athletes go well beyond sort of that point where they're going to be accumulating lactate. But as most trail runners know, it's really hard to ever just be on a very pancake flat trail. And so as a result, those measurements and predictors of performance actually differ a little bit. And so in this case, the authors looked at the VO2 max of the runners. They looked at the speed 
of their they were running at that VO2 max, which is often called VVO2 max. Looked at their ventilatory and lactate thresholds. And James already um, defined some of these terms, but James, I'm curious if you could maybe shed some light on why it was important and why you think there are differences in predictors of trail running performance um, relative to road running. And then maybe within even trail, like, can you predict performance at a short up to three hour race and then why it might differ beyond three hours? Yeah, so I think I think what they did nice in, in the study that you talked about there is they, they took a whole range of measures, right? So from right up to VO2 max all the way down to, to that first threshold. So they've got good information across the entire range that you're going to be operating at within a, within a trail run, okay? So trail running is obviously quite stochastic in nature in terms of that there's harder sections, there's easier sections, there's, there's not really true recovery like you have in a, in a bike race, but... You know, the sections where you need to push, the sections where it's very steep, the section where it's downhill, like there's a lot of changes happening the entire time. And so, you know, when we look at road running performance, like the perfect marathon is you go out and you sit on the, on the you know, on the pace that you can sustain to the finish. And then, you you know, it just gets progressively harder throughout a marathon, but your pace doesn't change. Right. Again, like there's also a perfect five or 10, 10K to get the best time you want. Trail running, you can't do that. You have to. You know, your perfect pacing strategy also needs to reflect the terrain, the steepness, you know, all these factors. So I think what they did nice in this study is they've got that whole range of, of information on athletes all the way from, VO2, like I said, from VOT max all the way down to, to the first threshold. And once you put that into a model, because it covers all the ranges of intensities at which you're going to be at in a trail running event, then you can start predicting performance. Yeah, now, absolutely. Does this extrapolate out to a different course? Obviously, they just use one course here. Probably yes, to be honest. Like, but probably the predictors will get worse and worse and worse, right? So, if you, you know, if you've got a similar course, similar distance, etc., then yes, you're going to have similar results. But if you had like, obviously, like a like a the predictors of like a VK, for example, are very different to an ultra, like a you know, a, like a Mont Blanc stage or something like that. Like, it's it's going to look very different. Um, but they're both trail running events, right? Like, so I think. Probably, you know, as you move to the shorter end of the spectrum, so you move to VKs, I think like the best predictor in, in VK performance is, is VO2 max because it's basically just a bit, you know, you, you can't quite sustain VO2 max for the entire time, but almost. Mm-hmm. And as you move towards ultra stuff, things like neuromuscular fatigue, neuromuscular damage start to come in, which maybe aren't in some of the trails, shorter trailing events. So you start to get some different uh, determinants or different things that are important. Um, so I think like for your, for what they've done here, yes, I think it would predict in terms of other events, but there's always going to be like a, a, you know, a, a, an individual event algorithm, right? For each individual event and what mix it is and how much there is uphill, downhill, technicality wise, all these things, um, to get the perfect, you know, athlete for that race. Right. Um, I think that's what makes it nice, right? Like, because, you know, it's very different. You know, if you felt like the Golden Trail series, for example, you should have like, you know, a whole host of different parkours that the guys are on and girls are on. And then, you know, you might get different winners based on that. And I think that's a really nice challenge for the athletes. I think it's what, one of the things that makes it for me interesting. Absolutely. And yeah, I think you touched on something that as an athlete, if you're looking at a course that's coming up and you know, for example, that your strong suit is that you're you are just a grinder, but your VO2 max is maybe quite low. You can then work with your coach and, and design a target per, program maybe to increase that VO2 max and maybe sacrifice some of those longer things. I think in trail, the other thing that's always interesting and in cycling is strength, you know, I would say absolute ability to produce power quickly plays a big role. 
in road running, you know, there is a kick often, but a lot of times, you know, personally, I've been in a number of marathons where I'm not kicking the last 400 meters. I'm just trying to survive. In trail running, that that's something that your ability to produce force while fatigued is a big deal. And the reason I segue into that is James has another paper, um, the predictors of cycling performance and uh, traditional approaches and a novel method to assess performance capacity in U23 road cyclists. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about why you thought this was an important thing and, and maybe how it dovetails in what we were just talking about? Yeah, so, I mean, we're always trying to predict performance as sports scientists because then it, it gives us some insight into what we need to train and how we, you know, how well athletes might be able to perform. So we wanted to look at it in terms of cycling and a lot of uh, in cycling parlance, if you go on Twitter, etc., a lot gets talked about in terms of what's per kilo. So power output normalized to body mass, right? And yeah, that's it's great like pace you know, and running, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's great if you're going uphill. But not all races start at the bottom of a hill and they finish at the top of a hill. Like, do you know what I mean? We go up and down all day and then the sprints at the end and there's some flatter sections. And so we thought, okay, let's let's see if we can find a way to come up with a metric essentially that predicts that has that includes both absolute and relative power outputs, and that looks at fatigue. So you know, quite often um, in bike races, the first hour or so of a bike race can be quite easy or the middle section can be quite easy. And then there's a maximal efforts towards the end. Um, and so we want to know this combination of normalized and absolute power outputs at the end of a race, what guys can do. And so we came up with this metric, um, which is called the compound score, which combined both of those two things. And we looked at what athletes could do in a fatigue state uh, for five minutes for, um, for absolute and relative power output. And then we compared that to race results. So we gave, uh, the, the UCI, so the, the people in charge of cycling, have a nice uh, scoring system essentially for points in different levels of race, depending on different categories. And essentially we correlated our compound score to the amount of points that people are scoring in a season and their, also their best results. Um, and then we did that for all the other metrics that are currently being used to try and predict performance. Uh, and we found that, yeah, this combination of both absolute and relative power outputs and bringing in fatigue, what athletes can do in a fatigue state, brings us to a better predictor, essentially. Yeah, and I don't think that's surprising at all to people, but I think on the flip side, what might be surprising is that, that that's almost new. You know, this was not published very long ago, um, but the fact that we're not just looking at your fresh three-minute power, five-minute power, and 20-minute power, that's a new thing. And obviously in trail running, that applies, you know, quite simply. Certainly some have, sometimes have just vertical racing, but of course, you're going to oftentimes have ups, downs, et cetera. And, you know, especially later in a race, the climbs that you have to do are going to probably be at a lower intensity because you're more fatigued. Um, and I think, you know, in another paper you wrote, the relationship between physiological characteristics and durability in male cyclists. Could you maybe talk me through how you fatigued the athletes, why you did it that way? And maybe we can kick around how that might work in trail running. Yeah, so we, we were basically interested in in cycling, what you can do in a fresh state doesn't like it matters, but it doesn't really matter if that makes sense. Like we don't see differences between successful and unsuccessful athletes in their fresh power output numbers at a professional level, but we do see big differences in fatigue numbers. So okay, so we were like, okay, well, how can we, how well can we predict apart from just testing it, what you know athletes can do in a fatigue state, and what are the determinants of that? Like, is it a high VO2 max? Is it good exercise economy? What is it that's actually important for what we call durability essentially so what we did is we did a standard set of lab tests very basic lab tests so uh step test 
um, the RAM test, and then we did some steady state stuff to measure um, substrate utilization. So how much ox how much carbohydrates athletes are burning, how much fat athletes are burning at, at different intensities, and then as part of my PhD, I actually developed a, like a durability test. So that test is athletes do do a standardized warm up, twenty minute warm up, and then they do five times eight minutes at one hundred and five to one hundred and ten percent of their critical power with active recovery in between, so less than two out of 10. And then we get them to do a critical power test afterwards. And so on top of that, we get them to do a critical power test in a fresh state. And then we look at that, what that decline is in their critical power and their W prime from a fresh state to a fatigue state. So essentially, when we, it took quite a lot of work to get to this test because whenever you're trying to do a fatiguing test, you can't just put, you can't make it so hard that everyone's on their knees because no one performs well and everyone's just crap basically in a, in a fatigue state. And, and you can't make it too easy because then you're not fatiguing people enough and you don't see differences. So you have to tread this really like uh, fine line of inducing enough fatigue, but not putting everyone, you know, in a hole basically. Um, and we found this five by eights, you know, it's a session that my athletes do in training. So they're kind of used to it. They pace it well. Um, and going above the critical power, means that we induced all those metabolites that I was talking about earlier. So that there's, there's some, you know, quite a lot of oxidative stress, quite a lot of metabol um, you know, metabolic stress on the system. And with it being relatively long, you know, we're starting to get into glycogen depletion, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, when we first did the testing, we got a lot of athletes to try it and, you know, test it out. And we got some really weird results back and we couldn't really figure out why. And basically, all the athletes that we expected to perform really badly performed well and vice versa. And then when we dug into the data, all the athletes that we expected to perform badly had sort of uh, gone a little bit easier than they should have in the test to maximize their, their panic performance at the end. And so they hadn't gone above their critical power in those eight minute efforts. And they hadn't actually fatigued at all compared to fresh values. Whereas the athletes we thought would perform well went really hard in those eight, maybe even actually went a little bit too hard and were really fatigued at the end. So we had to be quite strict in the end about the, you know, how we normalize that and, and quite strict about adherence to that 105 to 110% uh, level. Um, so, and then we just compared those. So we said, okay, like what are the predictors? Like let's do a correlation between, I don't know, uh, carbohydrate usage, it, you know, in the heavy exercise intensity domain and durability. And let's look at all these things. Interestingly, for, for critical power durability, basically most, if not all, basic measures of exercise aerobic capacity, if you improve them, you will improve uh, critical power durability. So that's like, we get a little bit um, blinkered into all these like high-end metrics, right? Like, you know, what's your 10K time? What's your 5K time? What's your critical power? What's your 20-minute test, etc. And actually, it seems that all those really basic ones in terms of like, okay, what's that first threshold at? Like, how good's your exercise economy? All those things that take loads of time and loads of hours and loads of work to, to increase, actually, they're the, they're the ones that are actually pretty important, more so than the flashy big numbers. Um, in terms of the W prime, actually, the, the only one that kind of correlated was um, carbohydrate usage. So if athletes are using lots of carbohydrates, they're probably getting more glycogen depleted during that exercise and we know that glycogen depletion impacts w prime so the w prime actually decreases so 
kind of to sum it up, you just need really good base endurance. And I know that's not like sexy and it's not like, you know, if you go and talk to a coach from 50 years ago, they would have told you exactly the same thing. But, you know, at least now we've got, we've got that data to maybe draw people back from those sort of, you know, sexier top end numbers that everyone seems to chase. And actually, you know, back to just basic, basic getting the, getting the work done, basically. Yeah, there is a saying that's sometimes attributed to sports science research that we're just proving what coaches knew all along. And, uh, you know, I know there's shades of gray to that. Um, but I think it's really interesting. And I even think, again, like to draw out the trail running or ski mountaineering even, you know, why don't you do a bookended test? And that could be a really good um, one. It's a good training day. Like the what you just described sounds like a really good training session. It's a hard training session. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then on the other end, you know, for trail running, not just your VO2 max or your ability to do 20 minutes uphill matters, but can you do 20 minutes uphill, maybe five by five minute repeats and then 20 minutes uphill again? And, yeah. you know, um, I, what I really like, James, about what you've been talking about is really this holistic picture of training. And I think as you and I would both agree, there isn't a magic bullet to training. There's not just, oh, if I'm going to do one session, it's going to be X. You, you want to think about diversity and you want to think about how you can sort of optimize across a number of different areas. And the reason I bring this up is um, I think when I've looked as like a tangential outsider to the exercise physiology realm, um, especially when you get on places like Twitter and stuff over the last few years, I've seen a number of these waves of fads and the same thing happens in running and biomechanics, you know, in running biomechanics, it was minimal and then it was maximal and now it's energy return and you're going to see these cycles. And I feel like what I've seen recently in the physiology space has been what a lot of people call zone two training. And a few years ago, it was all about high intensity interval training. And, you know, could you maybe just talk about why some of these fads, why you think they come about and in reality, has any of this ever changed your overall programming for an athlete? Um, I think why the fads come about, you know, you get an athlete, a successful athlete that does these things and then, do you know what I mean? And then, yeah, everyone thinks that's the golden bullet and that's what you need to do. And then so then it gets talked about and, and whatever else. And it just grows, I think. Um, Double threshold sessions. I think that's the key. Now uh, yeah. we've seen with the Inga Britsons being really good runners and I can't tell you the number of athletes I see doing that now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, so I think it's just, you know, people trying to replicate what, what the top guys are doing and they forget about, you know, the the, 90, the years and years they put in and, and whatever else. Um, I mean, I think like with the zone two stuff, obviously, I think that, that kind of probably came out of like Tade Pojikar's coach that's pushed that a lot with him. And obviously he's, you know, he's super successful, but I'm sure, you know, you could you could just leave Tade to, to his own devices and he'd, he'd still be pretty good. You know, I'm not saying that the coach has obviously done a really good job with him, but um, like, yeah, I, I, I think... It's just fads, and people follow fads. I think. Um, and interestingly, like we did, we did some research on how to improve durability. So we looked at like we looked at historic training, and we looked at changes in the power duration relationship across the season. And we actually saw that um, to the only athletes that lost durability in a season are the ones that cut out volume, cut out middle like intensities, and just focused on like high end stuff. And that was, it, it seems that's like a, especially towards the end of the season, like a minimal effective dose to maintain that fresh power profile, but you lose the durability over time. Um, the athletes that went to a more, what we call pyramidal training distribution, so a lot of that middle intensity, heavy exercise intensity in the main work, they managed to maintain their, their durability across the season. And the ones that shifted and increased volume throughout the season seemed to improve their durability throughout the season um so i think 
Yeah, I think we just get a bit distracted about, you know, what the latest kind of fad is and forget about, like, you know, there's that great saying about, you know, it's about baking a cake and you've got to put the ingredients in and all that sort of stuff and then don't just focus on the cherry on the top, do you know what I mean? Like, um, I think from, like, a training perspective, the, the way uh, I work now is we, we do a lot of profiling with athletes, so we, we do this whole kind of profiling I spoke about earlier to get a good idea of their... their the power outputs across a whole range of durations and then we profile them in a fatigue state as well and i've got some athletes that like are really durable like they just don't really fatigue but actually the fresh numbers aren't amazing so we need to increase the fresh numbers because that sets the ceiling right you're never going to do more in a fatigue state than you are in a fresh state so with those athletes actually you know we need to move the fresh numbers up and hope that the the fatigue numbers follow i've got other athletes that you know have got really good fresh numbers but are terrible in a fatigue state. And obviously their, their training needs to look completely different. And I think, you know, for me, coaching is the athlete times the demands of, of the event. And then that dictates where you go with that athlete. I don't think there's, you know, there's, there's not one key sort of session. There's not one key sort of approach. Obviously things like, you know, endurance athletes need to train volume. I think we've known that for, you know, that, that's pretty, uh, at one point that was argued upon, but I think now we've got to a point where, you know, a decent amount of volume we know is important. So, you know, you're not going to be able to play with the with the components like massively, but you can certainly tweak them in one one way or another, depending on what your athlete looks like, what their profile looks like, and also you know what are they aiming for. Like, if you're trying to take a, an athlete from that's done a load of ultras and do some VKs with them, that training is going to look very different than if you've got a, a, you know athlete the other way around that does VKs and wants to move into ultras. Um, so yeah, I think it's you know you you whatever you set for athletes should be a product of that the profile of your athlete and the demands of the event and that tells you what your training needs to be rather than following the latest fad yeah i love that and you know i think another potential reason is you see a study that come out because of how you and i know research has to be done in universities is often you're a student you have to recruit subjects for a six or 12 week intervention you do a high intensity interval intervention among students that are maybe slightly trained or in your case really trained but then you, you look at a before and after, but that's you know one and a half to three months long. To your point, over the course of a whole season, you can't just keep doing that same intervention because you know yeah. we're going to start losing eff efficaciousness, um, effectiveness. Sorry. Um, so you know I think, like you said, time on feet, time in the saddle is always important. What would your advice be to people that you know maybe they're already maximizing how much time they can be out there, so they can't be out on the road anymore or out on the trails anymore. How would you think about training for most of those people in terms of maximizing success over an entire uh, training cycle? Yeah, it, it's tricky. I mean, like for most amateur athletes, the best thing they could do for in performance is quit their job, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and that's a horrible thing to say, but that's why you know that's why you know full time athletes are full time athletes. And um, I think you have to. I think when you're, you know, when you have limited training time, first of all, make sure you're in the basics well. So that's like you know sleeping well eating well and then you can recover from the training you have because it's not re you know often it's not just training time that's limited but you know you come home from work and you've got family life you've got social life you're trying to squeeze training in etc and i think actually focusing on the recovery side of things like there's enough stress going into that system right like there's a lot of stresses not just training stresses and if you can improve the recovery side then hopefully that you know the equation changes and you, you see improvements in performance and then i think you know you just have to accept that there's certain areas that you're, you know, might not be able to, to improve on. So like, you know, let's say, or there's different ways that you need to look at that. So let's look at like running an economy, for example. Volume 
trends pretty well with, with running economy, but also, you know, you can do plyometric interventions, for example, and they're going to take a lot less time than increasing your, your training volume, right? So, you know, maybe that, I don't know, 10 minutes that you can fit in twice a week, you know, in the basement of doing some plyometrics might be an effective way to increase running economy if that's something you want to, want to increase. I think you just have to be a bit creative and also you just have to be realistic about you're not just going to be able to add, you know, 10%, 20%, 30% extra volume in. You just can't find the time. And if you did, you'd probably destroy yourself anyway, right? Like you need to build it up over time. So I think just be realistic with, with the time you have. And I think also one thing I always say to like athletes balancing lots of things is train consistently at 90% of your capacity and do that for six months, 12 months, 18 months. If you try and go to 100% of your capacity with everything else you have going on, the whole pile of cards is going to come falling down at some point. Hit that first speed bump and that's it. Like, do you know what I mean? You're going to be injured. You're going to be tired. It's not going to work. So, you know, be realistic. Say, okay, I'm going to hold 90% of what I'm capable of, but I'm going to do it for 18 months. And that will bring you much bigger results than trying to find, you know, those little extra gains. Yeah, I love that. And Alex Hutchinson and Outside just covered two scientific studies, and I don't have the author's names on the top of my head, but I'll be sure to link them in the show notes where plyometric interventions improved running economy between 3 and 4%. And that's the same thing the Vaporfly shoes did, right? But a lot of times maybe that, that doesn't get out there. And you know, I think especially when you're working with people, to your point, you've got a family, you've got a job. Things like that outside the box is incredibly powerful and it can be an incredible sort of potent thing for an athlete to get better at plyometric training when you're mostly an endurance athlete and they probably has a play for ultra runners, et cetera. James, the last question I wanted to get into, and I really appreciate your time. And I think there's been a really interesting conversation. You know, you've really talked about parameterizing performance over the entire athlete and duration. Are there any wearable things that you're either excited about or gear that you're really excited about, or do you think a lot of it's noise? You know, the reason I ask this is glucose monitors and cycling, which is uh, near and dear to your heart, have become a very hot topic with athletes getting disqualified from races. Um, you're seeing a number of other wearables that either uh, promise to improve performance or improve any of these metrics. Is there anything that you really like, or are you old school? Do you just like going by feel? Um... I'm not a big fan of a lot of the bot, like black box metrics that come out and say like you know your recovery score is this or your performance score is this or whatever it is. I think with any data you're using to inform your training process, you need to be able to have confidence in that data. And I don't. And I think some of the there's a lot of noise in a lot of the wearables and even a lot of you know the things that are sold like there's a lot of pretty poor power meters out there for example and i think it, it just gives you can send you easily in the wrong direction with your with your training you end up chasing metrics that aren't necessarily coming back to performance i so and i do this with you know with amateur athletes all the way through to professional athletes we try and keep it relatively simple um and when we do introduce a way of measuring something, we, you know, we want to have real confidence in that measurement. So we need to be able to calibrate it ourselves. We need to be able to check the data ourselves. We need to have the raw data available, um, all that sort of stuff that if we do see something funky, we can dig into it ourselves and we can say, okay, like we're not happy with this or can we retest that or, or, or whatever it is. Um, so I'm, I'm always open to measuring things, but I'm, always skeptical of the data that's coming back until it's kind of um, sort of validated and, and we can dig into it a little bit more, I guess. Um, so yeah, I'm not one for like the newest flashy gadget, basically. 
I would say. And, and I think a big missed opportunity is getting athletes to listen to their bodies a bit more. Like, mm-hmm. And maybe some of the metric, some of the, you know, some of the wearables do help with that. But, you know, if you ask athletes to ride or to run to RPE, they really struggle with it. Like, the, and it's like, that should be the basics. Do you know what I mean? You should know like what an eight out of 10 is. You should mm-hmm. be able to ride, like, you should be able to run at your critical power or, or ride at your, run at your critical pace or ride at your critical power on feeling. You should know what that sensation like is because if I give you a pace or a power target and you're having a, a you know, like an amazing day, I'm going to underestimate what that is and you're going to underperform. Likewise, if I give you a target and you're on a bad day because you didn't sleep well, whatever happened, then you're going to push too hard and you're going to underperform. So I think one thing before we get into like measuring more fancy things and more in-depth things, I think getting athletes to connect with their sensations more is valuable. Because I think then, you know, they can, you can actually empower them to, as, as a coach to make better decisions in races and listen to their body more, better than listening to, you know, a power meter or, a, you know, a smartwatch or whatever it is. I think we need to spend more time getting back to those basics and then using maybe good data sources to help that process rather than focusing on a new fancy metric. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I think to kind of close the loop on this conversation, that could be for the trail runners or cyclists out there. If if you don't have any fancy wearables, you know, take your effort, take your time up a climb or, you know, down a road and then look at that after you fatigue yourself and and then see how you can do it again and then use that to inform your training. Um, James, thank you so much for the time today. I really enjoyed this conversation. James has a number of athletes riding in the Giro d'Italia right now, so I'm sure he's got a busy evening ahead. Anything else before we close off, James, you want to let the audience know or think about? No, it's great. It's great chatting, really. I think it's uh, it's always uh, it's always good to discuss this stuff. And I think I think there's a, there's a lot of crossovers between running and, and you know trail running, cycling, trail running especially in cycling. Um, yeah, and I think uh, what the one thing I'd close off in saying is all these studies that come out, like just. You know, we shouldn't just be trying to replicate what they do. I think they, they're just there to inform the process and, and gain a bit more knowledge and then apply that at an individual level with the athlete. And I think as long as you do that with all the sources of information that come in, then, then you're on the right track. But as soon as you try and be like completely data uh, or evidence-led and ev- like you're just replicating what's happened, then, then you're going to get a bit distracted. But if you can get back to being evidence-informed and just use it to to, you know, have conversations like this and think about, new ways of thinking about things and then come up with your own ways of implementing them. I think you'll, you'll be on the right track. Thanks James. That that's been an absolute theme of this podcast is science is, is done at the group level, but then athletes typically experience the world at the individual level. And so understanding that individual variation, getting out there testing and questioning the assumptions is something that's incredibly valuable for all. So thank you again, everybody for listening. There's another episode of the science of performance podcast. Thanks so much, James. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. It's been a blast talking about these topics, and I hope you have some questions as well. I'm going to do a final episode after all seven episodes air, where I'm going to answer any outstanding listener questions. So please feel free to drop those in an email to research at boatechnology.com, or if you're a free trail member, you can put this in the forum. Thank you. Thank you.